0: You're listening to the Degrees of Freedom podcast. Conversations about higher education in the 21st century between students and teachers. Produced at the University of Groningen. Hello and welcome to another episode of Degrees of Freedom. My name is Tasso Sarampoulos and there's been a small change this time. Amy, my co-host, is traveling, so she's not here today. I am instead... Really lucky to be co-hosting with Malcolm Davis. Malcolm, welcome to the Degrees of Freedom podcast. I hope uh, I hope we speak many times here today uh, <laughs> together. Too. So tell us a couple of things about yourself.
1: Yeah, so as you said, my name is Malcolm Davis. I'm from the Caribbean, the island of St. Martin. It's a, yeah, it's a Dutch island, but everyone speaks English. I've been here for 12 years, I'm currently um, doing the master, a Master's in Educational Innovation. I've had a, a long and interesting journey through through the university system. And for that reason, I thought this podcast was very interesting, especially this topic, too. So, um, yeah, I'm very, very excited to, to talk about this topic and talk to our guests, of course.
0: Well, you mentioned the topic. I, we haven't had a chance to introduce the topic yet. We're talking about humanizing higher education today. It's uh, it's a topic that, as we've been talking to each other about, we're both slightly unclear exactly what we're going to be discovering and what we're going to be talking about. I think for me, as we've been preparing for this, one of the most striking things is the uncertainty that I've been, I've been dealing with and trying to really wrap my head around what it means to Humanizing quotation marks. I'm doing the um, air quotes as I'm saying this. Um, what it means to humanize higher education, and we're really lucky today to have two uh, guests that we've been trying to, or we've been hoping to speak with for a long time. Uh, Tracy Pelter from Educational Support and Innovation. Tracy, welcome to the Degrees of Freedom.
2: Yeah, thank you.
0: And Stephen uh, Stephen Jones from FSE from mm-hmm. the Bernoulli Institute. Stephen welcome. Hi thank you. It's really good to, to, to have you here today. We'll talk a little bit more about what you do in your respective departments as we continue with this episode. I want to jump right in and ask you to help us out to figure what is it that we're talking about when, it, when we are talking about humanizing higher education or education in general. How do you see this?
2: I think it's just recognizing that all learning um, has both a, a cognitive domain and an affective domain, that that when we come into a room, um, I always ask people, like, what do you teach? And maybe they say, you know, molecular chemistry, but what we actually teach is people. Um, and sometimes we lose sight of that, especially as we progress through um, different levels of education, the more focused on the content we become. And so for me, it's just acknowledging that I'm a human being showing up in the classroom and I'm in the classroom with a group of human beings that I'm I'm working with and, and hoping to help learn more about the content. So finding ways to build connection. Um, So that could look like connection between teachers and students. Uh, That could look like better connections between students and other students. And it could be also finding more connections between students and the content in different ways. Yeah, and just taking care of both the affective and cognitive domains of learning, because we know that you can't have one without the other.
0: Stephen, does does this seem familiar? Does this ring true to you in your job as a teacher?
3: Yeah, I mean, it, it feels very familiar. The I think one of the challenges of being an instructor is there's this implicit power dynamic, and a system which is about delivering credits and grades is very transactional. And I think the challenge for higher education is that actually you you want to be working with intrinsic motivation. My motivation as the instructor to teach something that I'm really interested in and passionate about and the motivation from the students why have they chosen this elective course and somehow we need to build a relationship whilst recognizing that there is this transaction element underneath it so how do you kind of not let that get in the way of what you're trying to do in terms of learning the content and helping students build their own mental models of the material and of of, of the theory.
0: I'm already really enthusiastic about everything that you've um, sort of thrown uh, to the table in front of us you bring up a lot of a lot of terms, a lot of ideas that have been on my mind as we've been preparing for this and as I've been an educator for um, in this university and others for many years. Tracy, you talked about this idea of teaching students, right, or teaching people rather than teaching subjects. This is something that has really uh, developed in my understanding. Stephen, you talked about this transactional element. And I think the, the, the topic that I want to uh, possibly explore with you a little bit is this tension between our need to, uh, the power dynamic that you brought up, Stephen, uh, this transactional element of assessment in higher education and this need, this increased need, our desire to address this effective aspect, the motivational aspect, uh, the human interest, the connections between people and and material and topics. Do you think there's an antithesis here between the core of higher education or some of the Fundamentals of higher education, which might be assessment and the human elements.
2: Well, for me, I think we we probably already see a lot of people doing a great job of it. It's just that we haven't given a name to it before. But if you ask anyone, like, can you tell me about your uh, you know favorite teacher from higher education, uh, and tell me about why they're your favorite, they're probably not going to say it's because they did a great job of of teaching me how to do this computational. Uh, theory they're probably going to say is because I felt like they cared about me because they believed in me um, because uh, they had a sense of humor um, that they were flexible that they had high standards and and I think that's a really important piece is that it's not that you're just nice but it's that uh, you incorporate something in, into your your way of being that's um, I think the literature calls it being a warm demander and so that doesn't mean that you're just friendly and kind and let everyone run over you it means that you're approachable and kind and friendly but that you also have extremely high standards for your students and you say i believe in you and i know you can achieve this and so they can feel that that you're approachable and that you have high standards for them um, and that you're going to push them in order to achieve them but in a way that feels supportive um, rather than oppressive
1: that's interesting because often at least recently, I should say, I've been speaking to a lot of students about this. And interesting, a lot of them actually like that there's a separation, but then they do like that there's room to be be flexible when it's it's needed. And so I find it interesting that sometimes the conversation is about, it's about the extremes of like, oh, you have the teacher that's all the way on one side, very warm and whatnot. And then the professor, I guess, who is, you know all about this the, the material very you know on the side so i've i found that a lot of students don't really feel like they need it to be all the way on that side but they they do want some flexibility mm-hmm. within within that you know that that space really but i don't know what your experiences have been with it um in terms of student feedback for example
2: um, well, for me, I don't work directly with students, but yeah. I did in the past. Of course, I, I was a school teacher and I taught in higher education. And I, I think sometimes I lean more to the too nice side of things Um, and that's something I'm working on all the time is having better boundaries and so being a more human um, or humanized type of instructor doesn't mean that you don't have boundaries and it doesn't mean that you share everything about your personal life with your students it simply means that you allow them to see a bit of your humanness and that's as much or as little as as you're comfortable with and and usually not too much but just the fact that you are a human being with feelings and that there are things going on in your life outside of teaching that you're not on a, a pedestal Um, but also that you see that in your own students as well that they're human beings coming to the table coming to each class with a lot of other stuff going on in the background that that maybe we don't know about but we can acknowledge is probably happening and those boundaries do need to be there and those high expectations do need to be there because that is our job is to coach and to mentor and to push people to uh, be their best selves in terms of of the learning Stephen, you're really good at doing it, I think, just innately with your students and what I've observed and heard from you. So maybe you could talk a bit more about it, too.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, I think some of what we some of what I think about here is is things that I would frame elsewhere as leadership skills. So I came back to university age 46, having worked for over 20 years in the health service in England. Uh, During that time, I ended up leading an organization of 400 people and We've got a job to do it was a pressured or pressured organization we had a lot of money that we had to save things things difficult things to do but somehow you've got to connect with people you've got to work on their motivation for why they want to do that and find ways in which together you can focus on what's important and make space for the fact that this is not the only thing in their life and somehow if you can find that negotiation and, and work out why people are choosing to be there and what you want to get out of it that really helps get people on board with when the, what you're trying to achieve in terms of the content. So it seems to me that, you know, it, it's not the same. People aren't being paid to show up at university, that they're paying to show up at university. Um, and we're not delivering a task. The outcomes are very much for them. But I think it is about that how you, how you create the space where we can work together to get, get the best quality.
0: It's interesting that you both bring something up that... Um traditionally in higher education may not be very self-evident. You talked about the role of the instructor, the teacher, as being multidimensional. Stephen, you, you you talked about it in terms of leadership, in terms of uh, inspiring people, motivating people to fulfill the potential that they have within the roles that they have in this organization, or in, in your case, um, in the health service. But we as teachers are students in their, in their learning um, you. journey. and. Um, I very very quickly noted down some of the tasks to motivate, to inspire, to counsel, to mentor, to provide information. With of course, I think one of the tensions with higher education that I've noticed is that traditionally, and by traditionally I mean up to maybe 50, 60 years ago, higher education, the higher education model was very much the expert telling other people what they should be learning, not really dealing with human, with human individuals, with their feelings, with their motivations. But instead, a model in which an expert in their field tries to convey as much of this experience and knowledge as they can to others, not really regarding very much everything else. Do you think that we are we have shifted resolutely from this kind of model or do we still have this kind of tension in higher education?
3: I wonder if that depends... Uh, to some To some extent, on on what the actual material is for the course. So there are some courses which are really content heavy. If you're going to be succeeding in artificial intelligence, I'm, I'm working in the AI department at the Bernoulli Institute. Your maths needs to be pretty good, and you need to be able to have those those skills around calculus. You need to understand what's going on, not only only technically, but you need to understand why you're doing it and get those concepts. So that's pretty heavy work, and people have to learn the content, but at the same time, there are also things where, in one of the courses I teach, there isn't an established model, there isn't an established theory. There are competing theories, and students need to learn how they position themselves within those theories. What what do they assess about the evidence? How are they engaging in a different kind of way? So I think the, the skills and knowledge that you're trying to develop in the students is going to vary by course, and I think that that necessarily changes Um, what the bulk of the time is going to be spent doing. But then there's a question about how do you do that? And I think even in the most content heavy courses, there is still space for um, humanization and for some, you know, some discussion about motivation and getting people to really understand why they're learning it to make them want to learn it.
2: And it also, I think, depends on the class size, right? Because clearly, if if you have a a a lecture where you have 600 students in a a lecture hall you're going to maybe do it differently you might try to build more student to student connection through different types of discussions or activities but clearly you're not going to be able to get to know the name of everyone in the room or or to coach and mentor them so it's very dependent on your teaching situation as well so you can do things differently if, if you have a smaller group size or depending on your your content i think or what you're trying to achieve in terms of learning goals
3: I mean, I think one of the things that is important for me is feedback from the students and live real time feedback from the students and making it clear that I have things to learn as an instructor. There's going to be variation in what I do and that I need to listen to them and understand how they're experiencing what I'm doing so that I can work that they get the uh, they get a good learning experience and they get something which is effective for them. And I find that if I'm upfront about that right from the start, that opens a space them for them to be vulnerable as well and for them to make mistakes and ask questions. And you know that this is a learning space for everybody.
0: Yeah, I love I love this discussion. This is uh, very uh, close to the way I think about this. Also, I wanted to maybe provide a, a, a counterpoint and to say that. Especially in situations in classes where the size is really large, and especially in situations where the subject matter or the the topic demands that the focus is on the topic rather than on the um, interpersonal dynamics. I think that's not only still possible to have a more humanized element, but I think it's also the place where it's much more important to have this. Because the possibility for detachment is so much greater when you have a class of 350 people uh, where everybody feels, uh, or everybody has the potential to feel just a little element in a big chain of events that doesn't really, um, isn't seen, isn't heard, isn't understood, isn't given the opportunity to provide feedback and a a description of their experiences. And especially in situations where the subject matter is, uh, like mathematics, where it's very content heavy, it's easy to lose the focus of, of the human element in this and to remember that the motivation is still very important. The positionality of the person with this topic is still very, very important even if there isn't a lot of um, uh, flexibility in approach or framework um, in this. Have you experienced much of this, Malcolm, in your studies? I know that in pedagogical sciences, it might not be quite the, the same. Uh, the class size is probably not very large.
1: Yeah, I think in, in my master program, it's, yeah, it's like 30 students, I guess. So it's pretty small. And I guess because you have two directions, mainly um, after you finish. Well, in the second year of pedagogical sciences, you can choose to go more of a clinical route, which most people do. And then the class sizes are still pretty you know, big. So I think they, when I talk to those students, I, I hear a lot of times that it doesn't feel very personal and that they can't be very flexible with, with, with such things. Or you know, oftentimes in those big lecture halls, even if you do ask for feedback from students like Stephen was talking about, you don't get much. Whereas um, in the smaller classes, people might feel a bit more comfortable because they know everyone after a while. So um, personally, I, I've seen that at least from my experience, it's a lot. There's a lot more of that feedback and warmth, and and and, and space to be more flexible uh, in the, in these smaller classes. I, I should say, me personally, I also prefer it to be honest. Yeah,
2: I think everyone prefers it, even the instructors. Um, because I think all of us, if we feel more connected, if there's a feeling of trust in the room, we have a more enjoy- enjoyable yeah, time when we're together. But it does take work to build that trust between people. And so, so we have to kind of be intentional about how we... I don't want to say design it because then it, it sounds like it's artificially manufactured. But but just in, in how we, I guess, design the activities to help build the trust. And we know that the trust is built sometimes in the small moments like between the content delivery. So in the conversations and even in the coffee breaks when we're out in the hallways together, I I was really curious during the pandemic because um, people were really not liking it because there was this feeling of not being connected to other humans. And um, it became very obvious to us because we were just talking to empty black (laughs) screens. And um, so people started to build in, uh, like, how can I develop more feeling of connection in this online format? And that's where people started to realize, oh, I really actually feel so much better when I allow for this, this trust building for this, this community uh, building these teacher to student connections, student to student connections. Um, And they kept doing it in their post pandemic teaching or or whatever era we're actually in now, but because it felt good. And also they a lot of people, I had one teacher in particular, she said to me, you know, I always thought that I had to maintain this professional distance from my students. um, Like I was the authority in order to have like classroom management but then she realized that uh, you know when the students saw like her cat running through her video screen and different things that they realized oh she's actually a human being kind of struggling with how to to do this stuff too and and then they started to have more dialogue and again there was good boundaries it wasn't that she was oversharing about anything about her personal life but there was more of a feeling of connection when you feel like, oh, this person's also a human and recognizes that we are, too, that we're all in this together and maybe struggling a little bit. And so let's figure out how to move forward together.
3: Yeah. I mean, there's this real thing about othering, but you've, you've, you've got a power dynamic and that feeds the othering. And you have you have to remember, um, as an instructor, students are people, too. And the students have to remember that instructors are people, too. And um, yes, that, that's that we're working in a particular context, but that has to be there. I wanted to pick up Malcolm on something you said about the um, about the, the size of the groups. I think the challenge is on the instructor to work out how to make a large group feel small. And I'm lucky; I haven't. Um, I think the biggest lecture I've given is maybe 170, 180 people. So I haven't had the absolute mega lectures that I know there are in some mm-hmm. faculties. I think there are things that you can do, and particularly what I learned during the pandemic from Tracy in terms of how you use um, online tools to. Engage people in the room, and I think things like um, Things like getting people to be able to type questions anonymously that appear on a screen Rather than having to put their hand up makes a huge difference Particularly for those groups among our students who would not naturally be the first to put their hands up Mm -hmm. You know confident young white men are one particular group, but that doesn't represent the bulk of our student body and so we have to find ways also, in terms of diversity, inclusion, and making sure people get a good experience, to take some of the pressure out of being vulnerable in
1: the classroom. That's interesting, because um, one of my teachers, she said, well, it was like a few months ago in one of my last classes for my bachelor's, she, she said that she really liked being able to... because we were actually talking about the idea of being like anonymous when you ask a question. And she, it was interesting, she said she likes knowing who asked the question, because um, oftentimes they know us already, so they have, like, a there's some context there, and then they can uh, reflect back on what what they've discussed with that student. And she was saying, you know, she personally would not really like having it be anonymous, because her being at home, she would feel a bit uncomfortable with that dynamic, because then she would feel like she's just talking to... Yeah, a random group of, yeah, she doesn't know who she's talking about to um, at the end of the day. And I found it interesting because I, I don't think anyone else in the, the room agreed. And I was wondering what you would think about Stephen. I think it's, if I have a problem with the anonymity
3: of the question, that is my problem. I think, um, you know, when I've, when I use these things, when I get live feedback, I feel that the group is working when you just get gentle trolling. You know, and actually people are making jokes about the content. People have picked up on something you've said and you think, wow, they're engaged with the content. And this is a space that people feel safe enough to have a little joke. You know, it's not people, it's different from people being disruptive. But if you just get that little bit of freedom, a little bit of flexibility, the anonymity gives a space for that. And it encourages other people maybe to come out of their shell a bit. I think there is things you can do if you get a question you think oh this seems to indicate there's somebody here who who's really hasn't got the right model of the content i think you can reflect that and say okay uh, you 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 can find a way to invite the person to come and find you in a separate space but i i do think it's exposing uh to uh to ask a question i you know i'm a uh, english native from from england i've got a prestige variant the university speaks global English, and that's not my variant, and I can't speak global English, and that's sometimes a problem. But if you're, if you're, if you're working hard in a language is isn't, isn't your language, then you need to take away as many barriers as possible. And I think having to name, expose yourself by asking a question is, is quite a high threshold.
2: And it sounds kind of funny, right, to say we're humanizing by anonymizing, <laughs> but but I, I agree with what you're saying because we I think we've all been in a situation where we're put on the spot uh, to answer a question or like the I've I've observed many many times where instructors just say to the group any questions and I know for me. Uh, I need time to process and to think of the good question. And I, I don't like the feeling that I put up my hand and then everybody's looking at me and what if I say something wrong or make a mistake? And so I like how you're using the anonymity as a way of acknowledging people's vulnerability and giving them a safe space in order to share um, and that it's not taking away from their humanness, it's actually augmenting it um, or acknowledging it.
3: When when we step into the classroom, there, I, I, I sometimes wonder whether how much we're bringing of our earlier education, of our high school education and earlier education. And I think many people have ex- experiences that are bad experiences from the earlier education of being laughed at, of teachers who didn't make space for learning. And that fear stays with you. And yet at the same time, you've, we, we can only learn, it seems to me, if we understand that our mental model needs adjusting, and that means we get something wrong. So it has to be a safe space to say things which perhaps other people don't agree with and and don't fit, and work out how we're going to adjust and learn.
0: Yeah, it seems to me that um, listening to what you've been saying for the last few minutes, and also reflecting on my own experience, that perhaps it's less about anonymity per se, but it's more about this feeling of safety. Mm -hmm. And in some contexts, the main way to create this kind of safety is to guarantee anonymity. We do this with our research, for example, when we collect um, uh, perhaps sensitive information from people. Yeah, good point. We we know that in order to promote this feeling of safety, we need to guarantee anonymity. And in some ways, this is something that uh, we bring into our live classroom uh, environments. Uh, With this in mind, I also wanted to say that I don't really like this notion of anonymity as the, well, I like anonymity as for the safety that it affords, but it's because I'm focusing on the safety less, more than the anonymity aspect. So always my focus is on finding ways to create a safe environment for everybody to be able to contribute and ask questions and participate and share their experiences. And if anonymity is the way to do this, then I do that. But if I can find other ways to do this, I prefer other ways because mm-hmm. I also want to build what you said, uh, this this more personal connection.
3: And I but I think it's also a process. And I think there's something about having to establish yourself as an instructor and establish the culture in that room. You know, it's 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 a mini a mini society. You have to build a culture. And particularly at the beginning, showing giving signals about how you want to work together with the students and what is okay yeah. and what's what's fine is really important and creating opportunities hopefully over time that eases off and we can the anonymity isn't as necessary for everybody because people feel safe to be vulnerable uh, you know but we also only have a seven week teaching block um, maybe you you're teaching some students you've taught in a previous course and you know them a bit better but we've got to do a lot in a short time and it seems to me that that culture is really important to get the best out of the short time that we've got.
0: Which brings me to another question that I've been meaning to ask you um, and it relates to how you introduce yourselves in the you know the, those first three four five minutes of a brand new course sitting in front of 170, 300, 50 students however many it is online or in person hopefully in person uh, more and more how do you how do you position yourselves as teachers? And how do you try to quickly establish this, this report, this human report and this context in which people feel that maybe this is an environment where they can more safely engage with people and content?
2: Yeah, well, for me, um, the first thing I do is, is uh, welcome people into the room whether that's physical or online. And that was something, I think, especially in online sessions where people said, oh, I didn't realize how nice it felt to have someone say, hey, good morning, Tassos, you know, um, even in an online setting. And of course, again, if you have 600 people joining your session, it, it's more challenging to do this. If you have 30, it's a bit more manageable. But but just, again, acknowledging that you're working with humans. You're teaching humans the content. You're not just teaching the content. And um, also, I, I, li- I like humor, and I know, Stephen, you like to use humor a lot. And not everyone... Uh, finds that a comfortable way of, of working so it's not saying that everyone has to be a stand-up comedian or, or anything like that but I when I introduce myself I usually start with something so I come from Canada and so I always start and, and Canadians we, we actually really do like to make fun of ourselves so I always start with a little bit of, of uh, some intercultural information about Canadians that's a bit funny and I feel like as soon as people laugh <laughs> then they relax and then it's much easier to proceed uh forward from there because if people are relaxed they're more open to learning um because if they come in and they're tense and they're anxious and they feel like I'm in a position of authority over them and that I don't care about them as human beings then they're not going to be able to learn as effectively because they're not going to be uh their brains are not online for that type of learning in general.
3: Yeah, so um I think I'm um, similar to Tracy. It's not just introducing myself. It's about how you have an introduction process at the start of the first the first session. So, um, I mean, I talk a bit about myself. I talk a bit about my background and the fact that, you know, I'm I'm a postdoc age 55, and that's quite unusual. But also, I'm not that far away from having been a master's student and going through the same kind of processes. So I can try and try and try and use that and. Um, Try and give a signal that choosing to learn and choosing to come to university is something that I'm very familiar with, you know, in in, in recent years. I'm lucky, I think, that, you know, two of the three courses that I teach are around language. Uh, One of the ways to open up the room is to ask people what languages they speak. You know what did you grow up and learn from your environment? What have you learned since then? How have you done that? And it, people are giving information about themselves, which is neutral information. but I'm clear also that I'm interested to know the variety of language in the room and how we're going to work with that and look at the differences of language as well as you know in in thinking about the theory and thinking about the content. so it it makes it clear right from the start that I want them to contribute. Um, so that's I mean that's great. I've got the advantage in terms of the topic material.
0: I think everybody has some kind of advantage it's more of a matter of figuring out what that is you have found it because this this relates to you who you are it relates to your subject matter it relates to your uh, relationship with your students perfect but I think everybody can find something similar to this it's always a matter of finding what that is and it's never the same thing it's never the same thing between me and my course a And my course B. I always have to find something slightly different for Mm -hmm. different courses, for different students, if they're first year students, if they're master's level students, if they're 400 or if they're 10.
3: Yeah, and so the other thing that I didn't realize that I had to do so, you know, in the UK system, you're in a year cohort, you go through the year, it's very structured, there isn't the kind of flexibility. So I really want to know. How, what what study year is this for people and what program are they on? Because I assume that everybody's coming from a particular program and actually they're not. And you think, okay, I'm just going to need to tweak this a little bit later on because there isn't necessarily the same assumptions that I was thinking about.
0: Malcolm, I'm going to ask you the same question, but slightly differently. You've had a lot of teachers. You've had a lot of courses in the last four or five years. Yeah. How do people introduce themselves and does that make a difference to you in how you you feel at the beginning of a course and how you want to engage, how you see them as people and how you think they see you as a learner?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, One thing I was thinking about while we were talking is um, recently I've been in a lot of classes where people start with their age and I feel like Me personally, I I try and I don't like to because sometimes if I do or if I hear that everyone is, for example, 20 and I'm 30, for example, then I realize that the attention is very different and it just becomes uncomfortable for me, myself. So personally, I don't give that information, but um, I have realized that that's a thing um, in some spaces and spaces where people just keep it to their credentials and where they're from and the name I tend to feel more comfortable. Um, I've spoken to other people who also feel the same way, um, also in terms of how long they've been um, yeah, at you know, doing their bachelors or their masters or whatnot. I, I, f- I felt that people prefer not to give that information. And also, if no one does it, then no one feels pressured to. So. But, but yeah, so I should say when I'm when I'm asking for that stuff, I do it anonymously, so it's mm. through a poll, so people can see what it is. No one has to be identified. Yeah, uh, yeah, that would be perfect. Yeah, I think if that was the, well, it's usually in a setting where, yeah, you're in a circle and they're like, ah, yeah, can you introduce yourselves? You know, just like you would do, um, indeed, back in elementary school or, or, or yeah, anytime back then. Yeah,
3: ooh, I hadn't thought about doing the whole circle for the whole class. So again, when I've done it, I've I've got people into groups of 3 or 4, so it's the students introducing themselves to each other, mm-hmm. but then giving the feedback into the class in a different kind of way. I also do um I kind of do a pre-course questionnaire as well, so I get the information for myself through a Google form, um
1: so I can so I can see that. Oh, that's great. I I don't really think min- any of my teachers have ever considered something yeah. like that. It's usually on the spot. And that's where all of the introductions happen. So then you learn everything there, yeah.
0: This is, I think, something that we really, uh, we would benefit everybody to to accentuate, that as we've been having this discussion, we often talk about how to do things in person. But I always have to remind people that a class has a pre component, a during component, and a post component. And you can make use of all of these in order to create feelings of safety, inclusiveness, uh, but also deliver content and create connections. And indeed, this pre-semester questionnaire has been a, a really helpful tool for me to create better connections, but also to understand who my students are, what programs they're in, what, how they are approaching a course, what their fears, their motivations, their interests are what limitations they might be having it's a great great tip
3: yeah I ask. in so in my pre-course questionnaire sometimes I ask why have you chosen this course and it's great you get honest replies and you know some people talk about the material some people say I need the credits and this looked like it might be okay <laughs> that's fine but you can you kind of can judge that and you can work out where people are starting my aim is my aim is still to shift people where they're doing this because they're interested in the material. But you need to know what the starting point is.
1: That's interesting. I've only gotten that question or seen that question or heard that question asked um, in thesis group meetings, basically where you have like four or five students, maybe more like you were talking about. Then the the supervisor might ask, oh, indeed, why are you here? And then you hear stuff like, oh, yeah, it was my first or second choice because in our program, you have to... Set a list of like which ones are you're you're most interested in, and then you're selected and you're put in a group basically. So it's interesting. I, I had not even considered the idea of pre-course uh, questionnaires. That just sounds brilliant to me. But at least in my studies, I've not encountered it.
2: And it's such a simple thing, right? Yeah. And it's it just is one of those things that you don't know what you don't know, and then when someone shares that they do it, then you're like. Oh, well, that makes so much sense. And why aren't other people doing it? But they just didn't think about it being a possibility. And it kind of goes back to what I said at the beginning about designing for connection, even though that, that sounds opposite because it's not artificial. But but thinking ahead of these things, like this does help people feel safe and seen. And those are the three most important things that everyone wants to know is, is like, uh, do you see me? Uh, do I have some importance or is the work that I'm doing here... Uh, meaningful? And and is everything going to be okay? And so um, if we ask at the beginning some questions, yeah, about motivation or who you are, it just gives people the feeling that, hey, this person sees me, even just the small amounts that I'm sharing. And that matters. Hmm.
0: So one of the things that comes up in this discussion that we're having and makes me question some of these things is that we're talking about some really good tools some really good techniques I'll, I'll name them techniques let's say and tools in creating these better connections this pre-semester questionnaire for me has been very very successful I do questionnaires like this on a weekly basis um, in my in my courses and they're also very successful slightly different ways of doing these questionnaires and I do recommend them to other teachers and then as I do this I'm also very conscious of the fact that we want to simultaneously avoid a feeling of standardization. I want to avoid the possibility that basically everybody does this pre-semester questionnaire and suddenly it becomes just another standardized element in a student's experience or in anybody's experience for that matter, also teachers, and also in the in a more administrative way. How do you feel about this? Is, it, is there a possibility that these technological solutions, we go, ah, Great, these are going to be very helpful. Let's all do them. And then they become devalued in that process?
2: Isn't it more about the intention behind it? I think people can sense your intention. So if you're just giving it to give it, and you don't have any intention of actually using it to learn more about the humans in the room, I think people sense that. Um, And if you really care about the information you're receiving and you're going to do something with it, people can feel that as well. Yeah.
3: Yeah, and I, I present the information back to the students. I say, this is who we are. This is where we've come from. These are our courses, this kind of thing. So partly so that it's not just an empty experience for them, but also very early on, you can show, you said something to me. I heard it, and I'm showing you that I heard it and listened. Mm-hmm. And so it's part of that. It's part of that culture setting as well. It's also, I don't have a standard questionnaire. My experience of the different courses is different issues are important. And so... I learn and I change what I'm doing and ask different questions of the students.
0: That's great. I'm really happy to, to hear you think about it in those terms. How do
2: you structure it, Tassos?
0: I don't. I'm, uh, I'm like Stephen. I, in fact, it's uh, in preparing for this podcast and in reading a little bit more about uh, the work that you all do in, um, at the university. One of the things that I've found very amusing and very uh, endearing is the, the fact that actually a lot of the things that Stephen does in his courses are very similar to the things that I do in my courses. <laughs> We're both really big fans of specifications grading, uh, I understand. Yeah. Uh, we, we both have this structure but not really standardized structure. We have principles that I think we use in trying to create connection that are based on the individualities of different courses and different circumstances. And they change year to year because our years change, especially very obviously in the last two or three years, because the pandemic has made dramatic shifts from month to month and certainly from one year to the next. Mm -hmm. So my pre-semester questionnaires changed dramatically from one semester to the other and from one course to the other uh, because social circumstances change, the, the, the nature of my courses change, but also, the responses that I receive color my uh, my new my new questionnaires. Uh, when I've heard a certain experience repeatedly, I adapt the way I, I work in my courses as a as a response. And uh, you're right, Stephen, that it is a way to, to give value to these responses and to this interaction by making use of it, by showing that, not by showing, it's not about the showing, it's by actually making good use of it in order to promote more human interactions, better interactions between people and people and material.
1: I was going to ask a question to everyone. Do you feel something like the pre-course um, questionnaire should be mandatory? Because, in the context of the conversation we're having today you know, on this topic, I, I was thinking about because um, I'm doing an internship at the teacher academy at my uh, faculty, basically, and they're actually doing research on the well-being of PhD students. And one thing that a lot of um, PhD students were commenting on is that, or or I should say there was one question about, like, how could the university improve um, the well-being of PhD students? And a lot of people were saying that they feel um, that professors are overworked and that they often don't even have the time to, to really, really spend time with, this, with the people that they're mentoring um, and that they have too many tasks already. So in terms of what we were talking about before, um, if such a thing would be mandatory, I've found that some professors find even something like that, which might not take much effort, they, they tend to feel that that little bit, bit, bit more is a bit more, um, it makes it a bit overwhelming. So I was wondering in terms of, it seems like something like this is very important, but do you think this should be mandatory given that you know the different workload workloads of different people within higher education? I'm
3: not a big fan of mandatory university top-down procedures. Mm. I think they can become really demotivating even if they're put together with the best intentions mm. yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's important that people think about the ranges that they've got and that we help in the same way that I'm trying to help students to think actively about their learning and what works for them how can we you know we, we don't have a lot of time with instructors and that time to reflect and that time to make changes is very precious I would much rather that instructors if they have any time to do that are spending it on their own reflection and their own learning rather than having to implement another top-down initiative.
2: And I think that it's also important that the instructors feel seen <laughs> yeah and uh, because that's That's what makes us feel happier and more motivated, have a better sense of well-being and feeling more connected to where we work as well, Um, that we're acknowledged as humans, uh, not just as numbers in a system. Um, Yeah, mandatory, I don't think is, is ever a good thing. I know in my workshops, I share a lot of things with people. And I always say to them that I'm not them. So I've never been a linguistics and AI professor at Faculty of Science and Engineering. So I can't say to Stephen, this is how you need to do it. Um, But what I can do is share possibilities. And then I can say, here's what I know from evidence-based research. Here's what I know from my own experience of 30 years of being an educator um, that has worked for me. And only you know what your teaching style is, um, what the needs of your students are, what your content is like, what your context is. So you have to take what works for you and then translate it to to your situation. And so for some people, they might find that those pre-surveys do help to build a sense of connection. And for some people, they might build it in other ways. But it's just kind of knowing what's possible so that you can pick what really resonates with you, and, and then that's going to work best for you and your students, and and help everybody feel better.
3: That that thing about authenticity, you know, everybody we all have finely tuned bullshit detectors, <laughs> and <laughs> the last thing I want is to trigger uh, a bullshit detector from a whole classroom full of students. It's not going to work for anybody. So yeah, I think yeah, definitely
1: voluntary. Yeah. So then of course, yeah, because I. I I tend to feel that the, the professors who value <clears throat> what we're talking about today will try to find their own way to incorporate that in what they're doing, and the ones that don't find it as important won't. So then it becomes like if everything is flexible, well, will those professors ever really add it into what they're doing? So then it's it's that that's kind of what I was thinking about. Like the where do you, how do you find the balance in that because yeah if there's total freedom which i personally I agree with you i think that's always the best way to go about it that's great but then there will always be those professors who will never really try to adapt and then their students might still struggle because of that so i always think about both sides of that coin if you if you get what i mean
0: i think the way stephen was describing it earlier in terms of leadership of a group of people. In in the beginning you mentioned this in terms of um, uh, motivating students but I think it's the same with, with other instructors. I think by far the most important thing for me as an instructor is to receive meaningful environments and circumstances in which to make good choices that apply to me as an individual, apply to the subjects that I teach and apply to the students who are in the courses that I teach. Uh, I certainly don't want top-down solutions um, because they are inauthentic to me sometimes. Sometimes they are great use and um, uh, very, very much benefit the, the way I do my work. But I also know that in order to be a fulfilled individual, which then translates to be being a better teacher, a more engaged teacher, and therefore a more engaging teacher, I need um, uh, freedom and purpose, not mandates, not mandatory uh, solutions for this. I'm also constantly aware of the fact that everything we do, both teachers and learners in at universities, is really hard work. It's a never-ending process. You never really... It's never a task that you can say, well, this is done. Now I'm done. I I did this. (laughs) This task is complete, 100% complete. This is never the case for students or for teachers. And, And that makes it very, very hard work. And the last thing I need is for this hard work to become boxed in with predetermined solutions that may work for somebody or for some setting but may not work for mine.
2: And we we work in an academic um, research university. And it's curious to me that we don't all look at teaching as one grand experiment, um, because it, it really is. And I think even if you figure out how it works really well with one group of students like we have an amazing set of variables coming in with a new group (laughs) the next time and even the group that you have maybe they're having an off day or something's going on or there's a world event that's affecting people's emotions and so, yeah, what works one day might not work the next. And uh, so we are having to adapt and change. And, and teaching, there's so much science to it that, that we do know about how brains lo- learn best and, and different strategies that work well. And we've done lots of research, um, although it's a relatively new research field when you start looking into it. Um, and it's also an art. So there's a lot of bringing your humanness to it and, and your personality, and um, that's going to look a lot different for everyone and just kind of about the feel how you feel the room and how you you connect with people and so um i don't think there is one right or wrong way of doing it
0: so this is a very good segue to a to a topic that i've I've been hoping to talk with you about that always baffles me a little bit in the last couple of years and um this is this the shift to to talking about best practices of teaching at the university and in general in, in higher education and it's 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 evident where this is coming from there's a more uh, there's a, uh, I think there's a demand and a desire for better pedagogical practices and um, and a, a stronger didactic focus but I'll bring up the example of the The education award that we have uh, for the past, I think, twenty odd years at this university, we've had the Teacher of the Year or Lecturer of the Year award, and uh, this has been going on for a while. And I think there was, it's been a process through which we may have, in the last few years, decided that well, maybe we shouldn't just be rewarding those who have the the fanciest presentations, and that teaching is more than just being a good presenter and an engaging um, entertainer perhaps mm-hmm. and we've now shifted this award to what we I think call the best teaching practices award where we are in essence and and in language uh, giving this award to the best practice rather than to a person this is how the language is described and I have to admit there's always it gives me a chuckle and makes my eyes roll a little bit because it seems like we're trying to do something good and we're throwing away something else that was also good, which is the focus on the human as the teacher in this uh, relationship that they have with their best practices. This notion of best practices comes with a certain um, uh, implication of objectivity or... or um, uh, what you were talking about earlier Malcolm about something should be mandatory. Well, this is the best practice We should be doing this instead. I don't know how you see this and whether I'm the only one who is uh, mildly uh, bothered by this.
3: So What is a practice? Is it a what or is it a how? And if I think about um, you know, if you think about yes we have if I think about something like um, music musical instrument, you know, I play the oboe badly and um, you have to practice And practice is not just showing up for the time. How you use that time is important. There are a load of techniques, but it's how you put your attention in, how you slow things down, how you you work about things. So I think the challenge for picking out a best practice is that you assume that a tool which works well in one context with one class and one lecturer is going to be universally applicable. And you may be undervaluing the how that tool is used in a particular context. You know, we we it's that thing about you know if if you have a if you have a hammer every problem looks like a nail, Um, but that's not our student body. That's not the material that we're dealing with. It's not the huge range of courses that we're teaching at the university and the huge range of research. So, I mean, I I love the idea of practice as a how. And I think it'll be really interesting to explore that. But then you move away from this measurability. Now I'm doing the air quotes uh, of, um, of what we're doing. And it becomes more situational, becomes more personal. And, but that's, that's how education is taking place. Every student is building their own mental model of the, of the content and working out what they want to do with it. And we have to make space for that as well as recognising that there are some things in terms of a process... That if we pay attention to these points, uh, it's likely that we're going to have a, a a better outcome for everybody and a more fulfilling and enjoyable experience for the instructors and for the students.
2: For me, I I see it positively because well, I come from a K to twelve background originally, and so uh, as someone who became a teacher, like I really identified that as as part of who I am. Like I am an educator, and then it's been a bit of a shift. Uh, working at a university now where I had a conversation with a good friend who's a, an assistant professor at Feb, and he said, Tracy, I love all the things that you're saying and, and how excited you are about education, but what you don't understand is that I'm trying to get tenure, and what is valued is my publication and citation And um, so if I have to choose where to invest my time, it's going to be in my publication, in my writing, in my research, and not in the teaching component of my job, even though I know it's important. And then we had this really, really interesting philosophical discussion about, well, then, what is the, in quotes, now I'm doing air quotes, citation value of each student in your class? And isn't that equally, if not more valuable, than, than your papers. Not that the research isn't important, because it is, um, but we know, I think research says, that each paper is read on average about five times, and and that's maybe one of those by your mom. And so... Then you have this group of students who hopefully you've had the opportunity and time and intention to build connection with. And then they're taking your research and your information and your knowledge and using it in different ways in the real world. And there's this ripple effect that you may not even know the extent of it um, isn't that equally as valuable. And so what I like is that now maybe there is a shift to thinking more about valuing teaching at the university, that we're not just researchers who also teach, but, but that we start to value the impact that we actually have on our students and, and the way that we do the teaching in a more human way and, and in a way that shows that that we value the learning and the people and that the organization as a whole is starting to recognize that and I don't think we've got it perfect yet how we recognize and reward that but we're still figuring it out and at least we're making steps and adapting how we do that based on instructors feedback and like I said it's not perfect but at least they're we're trying we're trying and that to me is a positive thing that I've seen um, change even in the last four years that I've been here.
3: I, th- I think that's right. And there's a challenge about measurability. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of lucky. I'm a postdoc. I'm not yet in that tenure whirlwind of trying to demonstrate competence and impact across a whole range of things and having to make those choices about time. I've, you know, I've got this. Yes, I have to think about publications, but I have some freedom in, in a different kind of way. I think the ch- the challenge is that we can't measure that input impact through students. We can't we can't do that. And um, a tenure committee is going to be looking at looking for hard evidence because they're going to make need to make difficult choices um, about about the quality of what's happening. So I, th- I think it's a paradox.
0: I think there's a lot of arguments to be made that maybe even in the research domain, this kind of objective markers of um, of impact are. Uh, largely misguided and very um, not object or not valid Uh, there's a there's an objectivity in that they are repeatable there's a reliability rather than a validity Uh, but that's that's a that's a completely different discussion I think perhaps more central in this discussion isn't so much how do we measure these things but what is valuable to the university and again I'm going to Uh, go back to doing these air quotes by what we mean by university. Is it the administrators? Is it the students? Is it the teachers? What is this culture that we're talking about when it comes to university? And I do appreciate very much that indeed uh, the the focus on education is increasing. Uh, This is also in line with this um, um, uh, priority for uh, the national priority for awards and recognitions Mm -hmm. that are more diverse in their nature, even though it's something that is still in the process of taking root rather than something that has um, taken root. How do you see this moving forward? And I'm, I think this is a question that I wanted to ask all of you. You've all been in in education and higher education for a very, very large portion of your lives, if not all of them. I, I, I don't think I've ever left a classroom since I entered one when I was five. How do you see things changing? Where do you see things going in the future, in particular, in, in this in the context of um, how we approach the human the subjective, the standardized this kind of tension. Stephen I'll, uh, I'll start with you.
3: yeah so I mean, I'm, I'm slightly different because I haven't been in education for a big chunk of time you know, it is, this is my fourth year as a, as an instructor at the university so I'm still really feel that I'm learning and maybe that helps as well that I'm confident that I don't have all the answers. I think the transactional element is always going to be with us. You know, um, students paying their college, uh, they want something for that. Uh, The university is being measured by external bodies on what it's delivering and a whole range of things. We can't get away from that. What I hope is that we can become clearer about what those transactions mean, Uh, and certainly so with my my courses, I have explicit discussions with students about grading, about what grading means. Uh, I try and listen to their understanding about what a particular grade means. And shift the focus from the number onto the quality behind it and I think I think I hope that if we can move away from a focus on the actual measurements to the quality that drives them maybe we will end up with measurements which are more meaningful and feel more robust though the challenge is that's that may have then a uh, a consequence in terms of reliability so I I don't think there is a sweet spot here that is that is going to work all the time but hopefully we'll be able to to, to think really clearly about how the quality connects
1: to the numbers. Yeah, I. It's such a big question because there's so many directions you can go with it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think in general, I just I keep going back to being a bit more flexible because I I don't think you always need to consider all the needs of each student because that's is just not possible in terms of of everything. That's that's understandable, but there's certain things that still happen where I'm like, well, why, why haven't we found some kind of way to, to, to mit- mitigate those issues? And I feel like those are the things we should focus on, trying to be a bit more open in terms of, um, yeah, when you, when you hear, when you get certain feedback, whether that be the student, the, the professor, or anyone else at the, at the university, that you at least sit with it a bit longer, um, because I think too often I hear that that's not done. And I think that's where we can push a bit harder, and being a bit more open-minded, a bit more flexible, at least hearing out people. I see, I see, I see us moving forward. I see moving forward that we we will that we're doing that a bit more, and I see value in that. Um, and I think outside of that, we're just going to make very small adjustments over 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 the course of the next few years. And I think that's that's positive, and I I hope that it continues. That <laughs> I think. Generally, that's how I feel about it at, at this point in time.
2: Yeah, I love what you said about the, the small shifts. Yeah. And that's something that I go over and over and over with people um, is that we know that... Well, I don't know if you're familiar with the business concept of Kaizen, which is 1% improvement per day. It's oh. a Japanese uh, business principle. And how micro changes, just these tiny changes over time, add up to a lot more than then no change. Um, And often if we try to do too much at one time, we are overwhelmed into inaction and then nothing happens. And so we do have, especially in education, the the whole time I've worked in education, there's always been these big pendulum shifts. uh, Now we're going to try this. Now we're going to try that. And I think they're, they're too big to be sustainable and they're well intentioned and often they have good evidence behind them but we try to do it all at one time and and we push it on people who are already feeling taxed and tired and overloaded. And so then people just say, oh, I, enough, I'm, I can't do anymore. And then it stops. And then we swing the other way. So it's, I think the key is these, these tiny micro improvements. And in our classrooms, I think we also have to keep that in mind, that we just make these small experiments. So they don't have to be complete course re- redesigns or 180-degree shifts in how we do things. It's just saying, hey, if I experiment with, like we said, this pre-survey, um, or if I experiment this course run with, with asking uh, for some feedback from students. Like, Steve, Stephen, you're so good at this with asking them, like, what are your, your, your Post-it notes? So I,
3: I, 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 I ask well, and this, is, this I've lifted straight from my old job uh, what worked well what could we do differently and um, on my first, le- first lecture of a course normally I give people post-it notes so they get a red sticky and a green sticky and they need to write something good on the green sticky and something to improve on the red sticky and stick them on the door as they go out uh, I don't do that all the time. It's, it's, it's a nightmare to analyze, but it's kind of... <laughs> and then I can say to them, would you rather do a Google poll? And they say, oh, yes. <laughs> so, uh, but, but yeah, but making it visible and making it clear that they can read what other people say is really important.
2: But even just a small experiment like that, like I'm going to experiment with that and see how that works. Does it help me improve the way that I'm doing things that is better for student learning? And then does it work? Does it not And that's not saying it will work with every group in the future, but you kind of get a feel. Like I said, education is both a science and an an art, so you get a feel for the art part of it. Does this work for me? Does this work with the type of, of groups that I generally work with? And is it helping improve the quality of education? And then I also go back to, and I try to remind myself of this often and stop and think about it, am I in integrity With myself so meaning that my message and my methods are a match so sometimes we say we value something but then we don't actually practice it and then for me that feels like i'm out of integrity so for example if i were to say to you hey today i'm going to give you a a continuing professional development session on better presentation design i'm going to tell you uh, some of the top reasons why you should use less bullet points in your slides Here's my slides. Um, And the first reason you should use less bullet points is here, bullet point one. Um, So then I'm not in integrity because I'm telling you to do something, but I'm not actually modeling it myself. So I think all of us in every level of our organization should be saying, if, if we say we value certain things, are we actually embodying them also? And if not, how can we start to make small experiments or improvements to bring things into better alignment yeah i don't know if that's possible humans are complex and interesting and uh, difficult and wonderful and and that's what makes our jobs so fantastic is that they're never boring and we're always going to be challenged like you said tosses like we're never done learning we never like i've been in education 30 years and i learned something new Every single day where I think, why didn't I think of doing it that way? That's so simple. Or someone shares something and I'm so inspired. And I love my job because of that. And it drives me crazy sometimes <laughs> because of that. Mm-hmm. But it's precisely because we're dealing with humans.
0: Yeah, all of this um, flexibility, this uncertainty, this mm-hmm. openness, also further, for me, accentuates the, the need for opportunity and of choice. We, I think we've talked about choice, both implicitly and explicitly for the past hour, uh, opportunity, freedom. Freedom is something that keeps coming up in my uh, in my own understanding of what I do. Giving teachers, to start with, freedom and opportunity and space and resources. This is where I like to think of these best practices and these um, philosophies and these tools and these technologies. This is where they come in. a as an essential and very very broad toolkit and set of values and set of philosophies to to dip into when the moment arises when the feeling arises when uh, the opportunity arises and I am gratified to see that to a certain extent we are making a shift towards this we are making a shift towards uh, giving more resources into education and um, I'll, I'll agree with everything that you've said about what I'm kind of hoping for in the, in the upcoming years when it comes to the development of higher education, when it comes to more freedom, less standardization. Also, in terms of grading, the, the concept of ungrading is very, very popular globally these days. And uh, with all of the limitations and the skepticism that this comes with, but also with all of the openness that this brings for new opportunities to rethink some of the values that we've we've not really considered and reflected on very much um, in recent years. Yeah, and
2: acknowledging that all of those things take time (laughs) and training and a lot of support. And sometimes those pieces aren't in place. And uh, yeah, you you can't keep adding and adding and adding to people's plates um, without subtracting so uh, what is it I've heard a term recently like subtractive improvements or something like that I'm not okay. sure but but yeah so how can how can we keep it manageable for people because if we say well-being is what we value then we also have to value the well-being of our instructors o- otherwise they can't design it and implement things in a way that that facilitates well-being of our students either.
0: Yeah, I think this discussion about well-being of everybody within the higher education environment. And this includes, of course, actually this is something that I wanted to bring up um, uh, earlier, that we very frequently talk about the needs of the teachers, we talk a lot about the needs of the students and the context in which their jobs take place. In terms of acknowledging the human element one of the things that i really wanted to also emphasize is that there are a lot of other people who support this kind of work who for the majority of the times certainly don't feel as human elements in this chain and i'm talking about support staff that deal with scheduling mm-hmm. right? i'm talking about people who make the classrooms function make the classrooms available to us who provide the technical support and the technological infrastructure for all of this who are very important and who I, I have a feeling do not feel seen most of the time, do not have a very active voice in this. And I think some, the people whom we would all benefit from giving more of a voice and um, more of a focus on this. But that's a, that's another episode uh, I feel in this podcast.
2: Sure. Sometimes we get hung up on all, all the P words, right? Like the policies, the projects, the procedures, the protocols, and then we forget the most important word, which is people. The people,
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
0: We're recording this episode just, what is it, about a week before the, the beginning of the Christmas break. Um, this is the context in which we are in, in this studio. I... I um, I hope that at some point we we manage to to give to put up some photos also of this environment so that the audience can can see where we are what environment we're in and where we're recording all of this. We're always thinking about education in terms of free choices in this. There's a reason for this uh, for the title of the podcast, and it's not just the fact that it's a nice pun. It is all about creating free opportunities and choices for people involved in higher education. I've had a really good time talking with you today. I look forward to talking with all of you on new occasions. I'm very curious how you, the audience, have experienced this, uh, this podcast, um, this, this recording, this, um, this discussion on the human element of higher education. I think this is something that we will continue talking about in future episodes. Uh, We have an episode on self-reflection coming up where uh, I can't think of uh, another platform in which uh, the human element is so uh, vivid and so um, central. So we will continue talking about this in future episodes. Thank you all for being here.
2: Thank you for inviting us. Yeah.
3: Yeah, thank you.
0: And thank you for listening to this episode of Degrees of Freedom.
3: This podcast
0: was a production of the University of Groningen.